All right, Dave. Hey, man. Thanks uh, for being on the podcast. Sorry for the technical difficulties. It's almost like someone didn't want us to have the interview today. No problem. Glad I could be on it. And every time I get on one of these podcasts, I always thank you guys, the hosts, the guys who are putting all this time and effort into you know setting these interviews up. And, and, and just again, I think there's so much knowledge out there that's free now. And I tell mm -hmm. people when I started doing this 15 years ago, you had to go to really expensive conferences and only big cities and you had to buy these CDs and, and tons of books and I spent thousands. And now really, if you hop on YouTube and, and these podcast interviews, you can learn so much just from riding around in your car. But I, but I know I'm not willing to do it. I'm not willing to start one of these because there's mm -hmm. way too much work in it. So I always appreciate people like you, Sam, that are putting the effort, the time, setting up the interviews. Uh, all, I love to be here and share uh, any knowledge I can with people about this business. Well, awesome. Hey, thank you, man. And you and I have become friends. We're in a mastermind group together. We share a lot of commonalities. We like dirt biking or four-wheeling. We love the outdoors, hanging out with our kids. I was a little bit late to our call today because I was hanging out with my kids. So, no problem. Um, but yeah, there's a ton of knowledge out there. And I'm, you know, I swear I'm at the podcast university every day listening to someone else's podcast. And I just wanted to share that with others. And so the name of the podcast is Recession Proof. We're going to talk about that, talk about your huge success in multifamily. But I want to start with something fun. You and I were just talking about four-wheeling. The kids are both our daughters. We bought them four-wheelers and both of our sons basically took them, you know, took advantage of that a little bit more. So tell me about your family and what you do for fun. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I always tell people I'm a redneck that understands money, right? We're either riding four-wheelers every weekend or we're at the racetrack. I, I race a series called the Grand National Cross Country GNCC. It can be seen on MAV TV. And actually this year was fun because I'm actually sponsoring. I was able to put you know some money in a pro team. So we've got the top a pro lady on a dirt bike on the team. I, I'm just a small, if you can see my name on some of the dirt bikes, but uh, <laughs> it was fun to be able to put money in a program like that and, and see these riders. She's That's from cool. Australia and we got some of the top four wheeler riders in the country. So yeah, we're at the racetrack every weekend. I'm an amateur. I just tell people I'm a slow old man that just loves <laughs> the sport. Grew up in Michigan riding four wheelers and started racing just a couple years ago. But now my kids, my son is, he doesn't like racing, but we ride every this weekend. We probably rode five hours on our 100-acre farm. So That's we cool. love doing stuff like that, man. When you're talking about lifestyle, I, I think everybody flashes these flash big cars, fancy cars, airplanes, jets. That's just not me. That's not kind of what I always dreamed of and some of my goals. But my goal was to have a property like I have. I've, like I said, 100 acres. And uh, mm -hmm. it's only 30 minutes from my house. So we That's spent so a lot cool. of time up there enjoying it. We've got hiking trails. We shoot guns. We take the dog for a hike and everybody in the family really loves the place. So it's, I tell my kids I'm building something for hopefully our grandchildren or their children, their family to enjoy in the future. So it's been a lot of, you know, sweat where we put a lot of money into the property. And so anyways, that's what we do. We do a lot of four wheeler riding and, and enjoying the country. So I love it, man. I love it. And when I think like rednecks, like having fun outdoors, I think Texas, Tennessee, Idaho. I'm from Idaho, live in right. Utah, but it's just, it's fun to get outdoors and, and to your point, teach their own, right? Like my best friend, he owns a gun, but he's not going to go four wheeling. He's never, he never touched a dirt bike. He's going to drive the exotic cars, live in the mansions and makes a ton of money. And that's awesome. That's great for him. He doesn't understand why I like to go camping and get outside with my family and drag my kids all over the place. And anyways, but it's, yeah, it's fun. It's, yeah. 
You're right. So each his own. I, you know, there would be one, maybe one day in my life and in another season of my life, I'm going to want to do European travel and all those kinds of things. Right now, this is, this is the season of life that we're in uh, mm-hmm. with our kids being 12 and 13 years old. And so that's, that was, I think they talk, we talk a lot about this goal setting. What do you dream of? And I never had it written down, but I did have goals and this was one of them. And something I've talked a lot about in the mastermind is this kind of reassessing what my new goals are. Cause you reach your, your goals that maybe you had, and then you go, okay, what's next? Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's uh, what what's next for me. That's been the, uh, a real help being in a mastermind, sharing ideas is resetting those goals. And maybe it's a lifestyle. Maybe I'm, I just yep. turned 40. So it's my you know midlife crisis. I don't know, but there, <laughs> there's a lot to go into that. So I think that could justify you buying a new four wheeler if you just turned 40. Oh, dude, I've, I don't need any more, man. Got, like we were just talking, uh, you know, you, you acquire all this stuff. That's what I've started realizing. I'm only 40. I've had motorhomes and boats and all those toys I always wanted. But then last, maybe a year and a half ago, it got very overwhelming. I'd say I almost went through just a a crisis mode in my life where it was like, man, I'm just stressed out because we have too much stuff to maintain. So I started backing up and going, look, I want to simplify my life. And you dream of having all this stuff. And then you start realizing, man, A, it's going to cost me a lot of money. And then B, just the time. I'm spending so much time working on this stuff and not enjoying it. So I started sold off motorhomes and boats and junky four-wheelers and stuff that needed work and just said, look, I'm, I got to reset, figure out priorities. And that's a, been an evolution for me in the last couple of years is cool. to do that. So, Well, well and you're talking about lifestyle and, and honestly, that's why people invest in real estate. Not yeah. because they want to get rich quick because it's not a get rich quick scheme. It's a lifestyle. It's how do I build the lifestyle for my family? And that's exactly why I got into real estate investing. And, and it's funny, my story is a little bit different than most. I, I grew up really poor and I just thought, man, if someday I could make a hundred thousand a year and then I started flipping homes and I thought, man, someday if I could just have a hundred thousand a year in passive income, that I'd be rich. I'd be set for life. And, and that is a lot of money. That's, but now I've got much bigger goals. And now my goals are to take a one year vacation, a couple of three month, a six month, and then a one year more sabbatical with my family once they're, my kids are your kid's age. So in six or seven years and be able to pull them out of middle school and enjoy our time together. I've had three friends do it and they said it's the best thing they ever did. The toys, the mountain bikes, the four wheelers, the boats don't even compare. And you have to have a lot of passive income to take a year off from your work and, and from home and, and everything. So that's the goal right now. But yeah, it's the it, lifestyle, right? Well, we just went through that. It wasn't by choice. I got a, a, a two-month sabbatical and really enjoyed myself. I because your I've kids aren't about, two and six. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, Luckily, we have two homes to be able to go. And I had projects lined up. And uh, yeah. I had... I had this year was planned for me to take maybe not a year off, but take, you know, some time off, not be going to masterminds, not going on vacation, but just to reset, you know, refocus and spend time at the farm, get projects knocked out, really enjoy my, and now it it just made it happen that (laughs) I probably wouldn't have done it. But yeah, the coronavirus has definitely thrown that in there and and made me take that time. So it's, it's been good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, the, the pause on traveling has been amazing for my family. You know, I was home all weekend and 
usual I am traveling, looking at deals or hanging out with you guys in mastermind groups. And it's been good. Let's talk about, let's go back to the 2008 recession. Let's compare it to maybe the potential coronavirus shutdown recession. But where were you in 2008 uh, as far as real estate goes? What were you doing? Yeah, we were, I, was, I had my residential real estate license, selling residential a little bit, but really focusing on flip houses. We were doing, you know, flips, wholesales, had bought a couple duplexes at that time. Just, I really wanted to be an investor. I was on a show called Flip This House or That House on TLC. We had one 30 nice. minute episode that I was still trying to find on YouTube the other day because we couldn't find it. My kids had never seen it. My daughter oh, wow. was a baby. We were pushing around in a, a, a car seat thing uh, at Home Depot. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to be a house flipper. I always tell people I never got into this game to, to own multifamily. I, I'm similar to you. I grew lower middle class, never had aspirations to go to college, but I had a friend who his mom, I was actually typing this up. I'm starting to work on a book. His mom was a real estate agent and I saw how much freedom she had. And then I saw people who owned businesses and I saw them work hard, but they, again, they also had that freedom. And so I guess I had two thoughts was I loved real estate. I, I loved building and, and working with my hands, but then I also saw how much time she had um, <laughs> as a real estate agent. My, my family didn't have, but yeah, we were flipping houses, wholesaling, kind of everything, selling a house here and there with our residential license. And then this opportunity came up for us to buy this hundred plus unit complex close to a university and uh, convert them to condos. And so, nice. you know, we bought the complex, went through the, the legal channels to, to convert them to condos. We're probably going to make four or $5 million after it was all said and done. I had a couple partners and legally everything was in place. We had contracts pre-sold like 16 or 20 of the units. Wow. Um, and that is when the summer, I guess it was 2008. I'd have to go back and look because honestly, mm -hmm. I forgot now, but maybe 2008, everything crashed. There was no financing on condominiums uh, at all. Nobody was lending on it. We were stuck with these units and said, I guess we're just going to have to hold them as, a, as an apartment building. So we went back to the attorney, undid the condo conversion. Oh, wow. <laughs> went back and, and just said, Hey, so this is really a big part of my story. So I had been kicking tenants out, not kicking them out, but asking them to leave, not renewing leases. So I could mm -hmm. renovate these units. You know, we put Re really quick, Dave, explain a condo conversion to our listeners. There's a lot of people that this would probably be interesting to learn what it is. Yeah. So when you buy an apartment building, there's one tax record for that entire property, right? So you might have 30, 40, you know, units on that one deeded parcel or whatever. And there's one tax ID for that property, but you, Back in this day, you could go in there and legally set up an HOA, Homeowners Association, then have all those apartments given a tax ID number. And so like we were the developers, right? Just if you're building a condo conversion or condominium complex or townhomes or whatever. And so we produced all the records and documents the state needed and the city needed to uh, assign a tax ID to each one of these units. And then they would produce a, a deed, I guess, is how mm -hmm. you'd it so you could sell each one of those and then we controlled the HOA until a certain percent were sold and then an HOA homeowners association would have been set up right um, but again we were thinking college students your parents can buy you an $80,000 condo across the street your student in there rent one room out these were two bedroom one bath I mean we had rent comps we had financing in place we had you know sales office 
Uh, we were doing renovations to the property, renovating the pool, parking lot. Back to my story. Yeah, so I start kicking tenants out so I can renovate these units and everything crashed. I was like 50% occupied going into the fall. When If you miss the, the summer booking right. you know, for, for student type of housing, you know, you're going to have to wait a whole year. And so, man, I just tell people, I, Dave Ramsey says you eat one, an elephant one bite at a time. And you know, I just started working one unit, running, renovating one unit and uh, had no idea how to run apartment buildings, no idea how to you know, do leasing, had no leasing budget. So a lot of it was Craigslist and word of mouth and looms out front. And I sat there as one of the owners and ran this thing. I didn't have really a day job. Uh, mm-hmm. My day job was running this property and, and I learned how to mow grass, clean the swimming pool, wow. paint apartments, lease, be a manager. And so, yeah, it was a tough road to get back. And so a couple of years we were full and my story is we worked on a HUD refinance and HUD, we did a HUD loan on it, which is wow. a whole nother conversation. Yeah. And oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And we actually just refinanced it and we're locked in at like right at a 4% for 35 years. Oh, wow. So yeah, so that's kind of my story of where I was in 2008 uh, you know, when the crash happened. But actually out of that, I was talking to a large multifamily broker here in Middle Tennessee. And he was like, Dave, you've got so much knowledge when it comes to duplexes and small apartment buildings. Why don't you start a brokerage firm that just specializes in smaller multifamily? Yeah. And I said, well, I, can, I need a day job. And I was like, why not? It fits into what I'm doing and, and taps into my knowledge and I can leverage that knowledge and expertise. And I was seeing all these incredible deals pop up. So I started Residential Investment Advisors, which is my brokerage firm here in Middle Tennessee in 2010. I think it was a first sale. So we've been around 10 years. Uh, we've sold almost 500 small to mid-sized multifamily. So anything from two to 50 units. And so, man, it's just been, it's been a great awesome. you know, experience to be able to just help people get into investing, be kind of that sounding block, that advisor, coaching them, whatever you want to call it and help them. And in the same point, they've helped me. I've had a lot of repeat business and clients. And so that's kind of my story, my evolution. Now we're doing more Cedar Rock stuff. I've stepped out of the brokerage firm, letting some other agents run it and working more on capital raising my assets. So that's what we're up to right now. Awesome, man. So you, <clears throat> the condo conversion project's really interesting to me because there's a lot of those for sale and they kind of go back and forth. It, it seems to me, I've been a broker, by the way, since t- 2010 as well. So I've been doing it 10 years, but now we're looking in Florida, a lot of different places. There's all these condo conversions for sale where there, somebody owns like 30 of the condos or 30% of the condos. And the idea is you break them apart because the market's hot enough where you can make a great profit on them as opposed to just keeping them, keeping it as a multifamily project to, to own or to resell. Right now, if you could do that and market's so hot for anything affordable, you could crush it. But the problem is you can't get much at a good deal right now. So that, that was really interesting that you were able to survive through the, the downturn. You had to get your hands dirty, clean pools and, and paint yeah. and stuff. Was there ever a time where you guys just thought about walking away from it or were you... Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I had a partner and man, it was, it, it was tough. I'm not going to lie to you. There was years I was making barely surviving 30, yeah. $40,000 a year doing whatever I could to scrap for a dollar, man. And uh, yeah, there, but I also just knew it, it's a pay of ups and downs. And if we can just get through this, it's not going to stay there forever. Cause this shortly after that, we started, we started realizing rental rates increasing. And so that kind of goes back to my story in 2010, there were $60,000 duplexes here in East Nashville, one of the hottest areas in the entire country, selling for 60000 And those wow. rents at that time were 
six and seven hundred dollars. So awesome. you, yeah. you know, I was selling clients properties at that time. This is 10, 11 that we're making a 30% return in cash. So we're like, Crazy. even if the values don't go up, where are you going to find anything remotely close to that cash flow? And then that return on your capital. Again, if the values don't go anywhere. And so I just, I was preaching cash flow, say cash flow. Right. We never, we, we like crossed off, erased, marked out any of that usage of appreciation and values increase and none of that garbage. Now those, those same duplexes, I'll sell them for $250,000 worth three and 400,000 just for the dirt. Because you can build two units on there. It's funny how things evolve and happen and, and everything. But uh, yeah. Well, I, I so it, it was rough there for a while is what you're saying. But there was cash flow, right? And so you guys must have bought this place. At I had to find, I had a partner who luckily was a big pocket, deep pocket type guy. And he was able to fund us to keep us floating until the, every year. He was having to inject not huge amounts of cash, but some cash. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was rough going, man. I'm telling wow. you. Uh, you had lots of people not paying rent. Your rental rates suffered a little bit. Some of it was just my lack of knowledge, right? Yeah. So if I would have been a, an educated or a, a seasoned veteran operator at that time, there were certain things that would have happened quicker, sooner. I wouldn't have let happen. So I, I did it enough to get us through, let's just say that. Yeah. Uh, but again, learned a lot of lessons. One of those things you talked about was if you own student housing, you, you can't miss the fall semester. You've got to be ready to rent and, and do a good job marketing and be ready in August, basically. Otherwise, you're posed for the year, right? And I start realizing, too, this is just another evolution of where I've come from, is I had a 1970s property across the street from the university. We, we renamed it to try to brand it as a student housing type place. But I quickly realized students didn't want to live there. I didn't have computer labs and hot tubs and movie theaters and all that. Yeah. So I always tell people on every property you buy, you got to find where you fit in that market and the identity of the property. Yeah. Um, I I, so I started seeing the demographics and who was moving in our property. And then you can start marketing towards that. That's where the, the knowledge of who, who in there. So a lot of our tenants, I told people were non-traditional students, right? Mom and dad weren't paying the bill. They were having to pay for their own housing. So they were, the, the cost was a big thing that they were thinking about and, and they would room up together and they worked at, you know, night jobs and they didn't okay. want to be around the partying. So you start figuring out what everybody's needs and wants are and then yeah. start marketing. So again, that's, that was my, we had non-traditional students. If you're looking for a quiet place where you can sleep during the day because you work at night, we were the place. You didn't want to be in one of those student housing places where the cops were there breaking up parties. So again, you got to find your identity for that property and, and, and the demographics that, you know, are, are wanting to be in what you have. Interesting. I really like that point. Thanks, Dave. So basically, and I've seen a lot of it, people do this, they'll buy a property and assume that they can remodel it this way and they're going to attract this tenant and they miss the mark. Yep. Because yep. they have in their mind what, what they want to do, but they haven't done the research. They haven't walked the property enough haven't walked the competition enough to realize I'm not going to attract that crowd. I'm going to attract this crowd. And that's important. That's hugely yeah. important. You got to know. Yeah. And the sooner you figure that out, it will, it, the property almost becomes not a breeze, but it will make it that much easier for you to lease because yeah. you're going to know when you're not judging anybody, but when they walk in the door, they say what they're looking for. And you're like, man, that's not us. You know what I mean? Right. If you're looking for, a place to party. We're not, I would actually tell people like I, I could tell there's 
some young guys walk in. Oh, I said, if you think you're going to be here and party, we have a zero tolerance for that. We got a lot of families here. We don't put up with that kind of stuff. You're not going to be sitting on the front porch drinking. Here are our rules. And I, I knew I wouldn't see them again. That was, again, once you figure out that identity for that property, it really helps you with your marketing, where to place ads. So Awesome. I love it. I bought a hotel in, in December and it's got 96 rooms. A couple, we're actually taking investors on it probably in the next month. I shot out a couple texts. There's a, quite a few people interested. It's a crazy property. We bought it for next to nothing, but it's been basically been a, a drug house for prostitutes and druggies for the last 10 years. So it's got a bad rap, but it used to be the top hotel in, in Farmington. So we're looking at in Farmington, New Mexico, we're looking at what to do. And people are like, Oh, you got to make the n- number one hotel in Farmington again. And, and I just don't think we'll ever reach that demographic. And part of our business model is we're going to leave 20 of the 96 rooms not updated because I think we'll attract families. We're going to have a splash pad instead of a pool. It's on four and a half acres. We have a full restaurant, a bar and and a dance hall. So it's going to end up being a really nice hotel, but we still have a huge amount of migrant workers, not migrant workers, but workers that are going out to the oil fields, um, construction crews that are traveling through to different parts of New Mexico or Colorado. And I didn't want to lose that demographic. We have parking for semi-trailers, so we want to be the clean, safe, but affordable place for semi, semi-truckers, for truckers driving through, and, and we're right on the highway. We've taken a while to finish our business plan, and we have the, the luxury of not having a mortgage on it, so we've taken our sweet time and had a couple other projects that we're looking at. Um, but, you're, but man, it, it's so important to understand the demographic. I would have never bought this hotel had I not been able to figure that out first. I wouldn't have bought this hotel with a mortgage on it if I had not uh, had the time to figure out that demographic. So, and you're not trying to convert it into a, you know, a Marriott or a yeah, four it's not going to be the hill. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so that, that's a great example right there. You want to improve it, but you don't mm-hmm. want to go overboard. So I see that with a lot of people of multifamily underwriting. Oh, we're going to do this with it. I'm like, man, you're not picking that hotel up and moving it to a different part of town, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and paint and carpet and granite only gets you so far. Um, so again, don't go overboard with one of the code with this brokerage firm. I've gotten to sit back, advise, see what people did as a mistake. And I, I see that I'm going to, I'm going to do this and this. And I would just say quickly, show me how much of a return you're going to get on that investment. Yeah. The one I would always use is central heat and air. So you're going to put central heat and air in it versus window air conditioners and baseboard heat. What, what are you going to get for it? Oh, an extra $10 a month. Again, I, I yeah. want to see how that, you know, works mm-hmm. into your numbers. You're going to spend six, $8,000 adding central heat and air to get $10 more a month. If you're a cash flow buyer, you know, that those numbers don't work. Uh, it's right. going to take 10 years to get repayment on that. But you know, if you are, you know, looking to, you know, increase just the value of the asset, then that might work. So again, don't over improve. Right. And don't underimprove. I, I was part of a fourplex development in Boise. So I helped basically I did all the research and helped develop uh, 256 units, 257 units up there. And what I noticed, there's a difference between Utah and Boise. Boise has smaller family sizes and they are much more concerned with your granite countertop, your stainless steel appliances, the size of the unit, or basically the upgrades where in Utah, they just want as many bedrooms as they can have. They don't care about flow as much. Everyone, all these Mormons in Utah, we have 18 kids each. <laughs> and uh, the number of bedrooms and the, the space for multiple kids is much more important in Utah. 
we go to Boise and I get, I tell my investor or my, my partners, I'm like, all right, we have to do stainless steel. We have to do X, Y, and Z. It's a different market. I, I left that partnership before the project was done. They ended up shrinking the unit sizes and, and skimping on a lot of the upgrades. And it was very frustrating for me because our location was top notch. You can't build a fourplex in a better location. And my investors are struggling to rent them now. And if you go walk through them, you're like, yeah, this misses the mark. We're in a luxury, high-end, a hipster area. And we've delivered a low-end product that feels tight and confined. And it's got laminate countertops and linoleum. And, and it, it doesn't match any of the other developments around it. And it's very frustrating. And it's unfortunate because that should be one of the best fourplex projects in the state of Idaho. As far as the location goes, it's struggling to rent and it's just so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can go both ways, right? You yeah. can do under or over. And again, I think testing one unit is always a good go above. That's what we've done on projects is maybe spend too much and then figure out how we can back it down. We had, we spent 7,000. Could we do it at five and get that same rental rate? And right. so that's how we've done certain projects and just figure out things that people didn't care about changing slab doors to four panel doors. Right. Nobody cared. It was a, the time to do it a couple days or a day project. And then the cost, right? Again, we're getting the same rental rate. Don't do it. There's those things that you want to fix that are going to help you as an investor. It might not be cosmetic stuff, but Hey, let's make sure that all the outlets are secure and work and, and light fixtures. Because I always just tell people, I'm not a slumlord. I'm a good landlord. I fix things from nine till five. Don't call me on the nights or weekends. We right. take care of issues from nine to five. And, and so I don't want to get any of those midnight phone calls. So I'm going to try to be proactive in my maintenance and, and renovation so that again, those simple things fix from nine to five. That's the fr most frustrating thing is when a tenant calls and says Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon and mm -hmm. you know, it's a hundred degrees here in Nashville. I said, Man, my, my air has not been working this last week. You're going to have to wait till Monday yeah. because if you need oh, to no. call us, you know, Monday through Friday and we will take care of this. We're good. I treat my tenants. I try to treat them very well because I know they, I'm useless without them. They're paying my mortgage or they're, they're the income. They're the customer. So we, we take really good care of our tenants. I take a lot of pride in that. So it frustrates me when we get those calls. Right. Um, but again, being on top of maintenance and, and taking care of those issues, we actually sent out, we're getting ready to you know, warm up here in Nashville. We still have a few units I manage out of this office. My uh, office manager does. We sent mm -hmm. out a text to everybody and said, hey, please turn on your air conditioner when it was nice warmer day so that we have an idea and we can get somebody lined up before everybody starts turning on their air conditionings and, and then you're a week behind. Check your air filters, things like that. Again, being proactive with that maintenance is going to help you a lot. So. That's smart, man. That's smart. Well, let's talk about duplexes and fourplexes. You and I have both been brokers, sold a ton of those. And, and that's one of the reasons I got into multifamily is I saw these people throwing 100, 200, 300,000 into a duplex or a fourplex. And it wasn't that secure of a deal. It, it just, the market here got so hot for duplexes and fourplexes. So I told them they needed to start putting their money into multifamily where they could get a better return and it was a little bit safer. Heidi, I need you to go out. <laughs> hey, come wave. Come wave and say hi. Wait, are you on one of those calls? Yeah, we're on one of those calls. I want to do it. I want to do okay, it. Okay, next time, say see you later. He has a four-wheeler. He drives four-wheelers. I want to drive a four-wheeler, too. Okay, you need to go out and shut the door, please, right now. Okay, see ya. Thank you. I'm going to go lock the door.
Okay. Go away, Heidi. <laughs> That's nice, a six and a half. Nice. Year old. Yeah. Now, uh, now get out of here. <laughs> I love you. Bye. Edit this, right? So you can. Just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a guy that edits everything, so we're good. So start um, back with that question again. Yeah. So the reason. So I got something in my eye. Okay, so the reason I got into multifamilies, duplexes and fourplexes got so hot here, crazy out of control. When I would sell duplex as a listing agent, I'd get 14, 15 offers. Some of them were buying them at a four cap, four and a half cap. And I, I didn't like selling those to my investors because I felt like they could put their money in a place where they could get a better return. It was lower risk and, and just better for them. So tell me about your experience selling duplexes and fourplexes and any advice you'd you'd give someone. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this and we obviously put syndications together, small ones, but I've done a lot of JVing. Uh, I've sold a lot of duplexes. We're talking hundreds of duplexes. And, and really, I think there there's different strategies. And I was just on another podcast last week and I really broke it up into, there's a lot of people that just want to own, they're simple. They want to own things on their own. They don't yep. want to put money in big syndications. And so they want control. Duplexes, yeah, they want control. They don't want to have to ask people. They don't want to have to get their, whatever. They just want to own 10 duplexes on their own, cash yep. a lot of them. Uh, you'd be surprised and, and you're probably the same, but you know, many people I've sold that have cash that just yeah. you know, buy one or two duplexes a year and they're perfect. And that's a great investment strategy. You're not going to get this thousand unit portfolio or 3000 unit, but you own all of it. You control all of it. Yep. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. I had a guy, Nick Ogden on my, on my zoom call last week and we were talking about that. He knew a gentleman who owned a hundred unit complex, completely free and clear. And he, nice. you know, he had a great lifestyle versus somebody that puts a syndication together and owns one or 2% uh, of it. Mm -hmm. So it's really a control issue, I think. And, and that's fine. Like I, again, we sell tons of duplexes. It's a great investment strategy is to buy duplexes, quads, whatever you can in your little portfolio. I've got a lot of clients that own 90, hundred doors in duplexes and quads. They've got the management figured out. They're okay with the debt because they're not over leveraged. They know yep. the market, they're right around the corner. So, so that's a great thing. Or, you know, what I've done a lot is just joint venturing with guys where I own a 50, 60 unit complex with one, one or two other people. Mm -hmm. That's another strategy. And then where you can do the larger syndication stuff. And I think that's the beautiful thing about this business is you can choose one or you can do them all if you really want to. And so what we've done with the brokerage firm is I've got clients that own a 25 or a 50 unit or duplexes on their own. And that's great. But then they'll put money in Cedar Rock because they understand the business. They understand me. They understand how I think. And they'll put fifty, a hundred thousand dollars into something we're doing. There's a thousand ways to do this and skin a cat. And so I, I always thought, oh, bigger is better, bigger is better, all these syndications. And they're just different business models, really. Yeah. And it depends, like you said, on what you're comfortable with. I have a partner who he will never partner with with more than one person. He has to have fifty-one percent ownership. He has to have control. But he's right. been doing this 40 years and he's seen everything. He's seen really bad partnerships, screw things up. And me and Lyndon, who we're doing all the work, we're finding the deals. And Michael has 5 million bucks in the bank at all times. And we'll buy a deal together. And we're going to do all the work. He's just going to make sure that we don't do anything stupid because he, he wants control. But he would never throw money in a syndication, ever. Not because they're not good deals, but because he's just set in his ways and he wants to be the owner. He wants to be the guy. And then I have investors who are heart surgeons in California. 
making a couple million a year and yeah, they, they don't have time. They have the money and they don't have time. I don't even take my calls. They right. literally, they'll look at an email and say, okay, I trust you. I know you, I trust you. Yeah. Where do I wire my money? And, so, and that's something I've had to learn to bite my tongue because I would see something where broker and go, who would buy that? But then there's that guy that's, hey, hey man, I've got 1031. It's next to the property I already own. What's this? It's that. And I go, it doesn't make sense for me, but it makes perfect sense for him. So right. there's a broker or somebody you just, you know, it, on the surface, it doesn't look like it makes any deal, uh, any sense. But right. you know, then there's those situations hey, I'm going to have to pay taxes. I'd rather 1031 and overpay for it, which is whatever the scenario is. Yeah, absolutely. There's different options for different people. A lot of my duplex and fourplex owners, they have a property manager. I sell a ton of properties to people out of California. Huge amount. I sell these townhomes. I own four townhomes here in Lehigh and the Silicon Slopes. And they're an amazing asset because you can buy 10 of them if you want, all in an amazing location. You have a property manager manage them. And most of my investors have never been here, never been to Lehigh, Utah, which is south of Salt Lake, and they've never seen their property. And that's, that's great. And then I have duplex owners where they're like literally every week harassing their tenants to make sure that the lawn is mowed, there's no bikes in the yard, there's everything's picked up, and the duplexes are immaculate, and... The renters actually like them because they fix every little thing perfectly. And so, yeah, there's some different strategies. The, the thing I wanted to talk about really quick is just underwriting. I think Tennessee is a little bit different than Utah as far as rents and demographic. But as far as the underwriting goes, it's going to be the same. So do you have any tips on underwriting a duplex or basically running the numbers on a duplex or a fourplex? Let me say this one thing before we get into that. The one thing I don't like about smaller multifamily and, and I don't see any options is the financing, right? The reason we love anything a million dollars, million and a half or bigger is the financing, right? That's the big one, right? Mm-hmm. The non-recourse 30-year AM versus your bank loan, your five or seven-year you know, loan on a 20-year amortization. So that's the one thing that I, I hate that there's not an option. So I'm like, hey, if you can buy that million two property versus an $800,000 property and get the non-recourse and the 30-year amortization versus the 20. So that that's the one thing that you know I don't like. But again, if you're a six or seven figure incomer looking to place money, you're not looking to live off these duplexes, you're just planting financial seeds that will sprout in the future and you know, put them to bed, they're, they're a great option for you as well. You know, underwriting, we, we use, again, it, it just depends. It depends on who's going to manage it, how you're going to manage it. Back to, you look at deals and go, they don't make any sense. And I have to tell brokers that, that bring me deals all the time because I tell them, you might be able to find somebody in that local market that's going to buy that 20 unit and they're going to be the manager. They're going to be the the lawn care guy. They're going to be the asset manager. They're going to be everything, right? So your expenses are going to be very low. Um, For me, buying something out of state, there's no way I can do that. I can't, you know, not going to do that. And so my business model doesn't work. Uh, But a lot of the smaller stuff, we look at appraisals all the time and we throw that $2,500 a unit type expense rate out. So right. duplex expense wise, our taxes are pretty low here. Again, just depending on the, the quality of the asset, is it newer? Is it older? Does it need CapEx stuff in the beginning? Uh, how much CapEx are you going to put in the beginning? We'll lower that. You know, that 2,500 to 3,000 a unit is, is a number we, we use mm-hmm. uh, here. Our vacancy rate's very low. And that's one reason I actually got into the brokering is because I didn't see anybody who understood these terms and these formulas we're using 
that was selling duplexes. There were a bunch of residential agents that you would use the term cash cow all the time and underwriting it as 100% of the money coming in 100% of the time, which we all know there was no vacancy rate. There's no management fee in there. Those are the kinds of things. That's why I started Residential Investment Advisors was to help people look at these smaller deals, but with the larger mindset and deal underwriting, but applied to smaller stuff. So I love it, man. I love it. And that's exactly what I've been doing for the last seven or eight years now. There's plenty of good options in Salt Lake. We're a pretty dang big market. There's people that invest, but it's amazing how many, you're right, realtors are selling duplexes that don't understand how to underwrite it. So one of my down and dirties is I just use 35% expense ratio. And if you don't know the range, if you don't know anything about the property, right. the location, you can jump on Rentler, you can jump on apartments.com. Here it's KSL and Craigslist as well. You can run a pretty good analysis of a property. It's a, a two bedroom. I always knock doors. I go and I just knock the door and say, hey, I'm thinking about moving in here. What are the rents? How do you like the area? And, and I just secret shop it. 35%. I think you can even do that on large, on large properties. Yeah, like so I, I. You probably do this. I see so many, I'm on podcasts, we're on social media. I get a lot of guys that want to send me these elaborate spreadsheets and they, A, they don't even know what tab has what numbers in there and <laughs> they don't know how to underwrite it like you're talking about on the back of a napkin. Really, give me the address, give me the unit mix and, and I can, and if you, you know, have an idea of what the price is, I can tell you yes or no pretty right. quickly. If I run my numbers and it's at a four cap, then we're way off. And so you need a lot of information. Duplexes are simple. There's no leasing office. There's no internet. There's no on-site manager. There's, you can get your tenants to take care of the grass. They pay for their own trash pickup. The utilities are separate. So really taxes, insurance, property management, vacancy rate, some capital, some reserve money. And sometimes, and I tell you, it's hard to underwrite duplexes. Let me tell you, say this last thing. It's under, hard to underwrite duplexes, mostly if you're trying to get like P&Ls and three years right. tax records, all that crap, because yeah. you might go five years with no tenant moving out. And then yeah. you get the one year where both tenants move out and you're having to inject tons of cash in that unit mm-hmm. in both sides and re-rent them. And your financials are going to look terrible that year. Yep. Um, and obviously the larger the property, we're, we're running more numbers and, and, and you don't have both tenants move out or all hundred tenants move out in one year on a, a larger property. So analyzing them can be a little trickier but again that kind of goes back into your management are you going to be trying to push rent where those tenants might move out what kind of units do you have i always when we're showing duplexes or i'm looking at units i always have it's a stupid term but i call it stay here factors i haven't realized in people that with no washer and dryer connections no central heat and air one bedroom units they had quick turnover right people need more storage they need covered parking. They want washer dryer connection. So when I'm going through a unit, I'm adding all those things up in my head saying, man, I can find a tenant here that will stay here for three years because there's, yeah. you know, it's got everything. So again, how much, how much turnover are you going to have on a duplex? I've got duplexes. I've had the same tenant. I actually sold it last year. I had one duplex. I bought the same family rented both sides from me for 10 years. And wow. if somebody looked at my numbers, Hey, I didn't put a lot of money into it. Cause they were, I didn't really push the rents. They didn't ask for much. They took care of the property. I never set foot on it. So if you looked at my financials, you're going to, you're going to notice those things that my rents were low. Yes. But I had no maintenance costs. Again, duplexes and, and smaller stuff, the smaller it's the harder it is underwrite or year to year. Well, and I think one of the main things is, is you get into the bigger units and you have a professional accounting software. You have Appfolio or you have something where 
Entrada, you, you have an actual software where you just throw your numbers into it. And so you can print off usually a PL a little bit easier that way. But yeah, duplexes and fourplexes, I rarely get much more than, hey, I did the roof two years ago. It cost this. And I did some boilers or some water heaters and an AC unit. And here's the rents. You know? That's what my biggest advice. We're telling the owners this all the time. Go set up a separate bank account at least. Just dump the money in there and, eat, and cash injections, put the money in there. Just some kind of record to keep. 25 unit complexes that literally the owner gave me his personal checkbook registry. <laughs> and I had to go through and read yeah. all his checks and figure out what was and build P&Ls, bankers to give appraisers. And then we run a pro forma and run a pro forma budget and how it's going to be done and rental rates. And it's, man, yep. if you would just do a simple separate bank account, it would make your life a whole lot easier when you go to sell. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it just costs the, you, the owner, more money if you don't do that. Because if people are having to guess on those numbers, they're going to guess conservatively right. uh, in their favor, not your favor. So it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars by not simply going and setting up a free business checking account. Yep. And there's another reason for that. It, it's You should have an LLC and your own checking account for the property just for legal liability, just to protect your home and, and your personal ass, personal assets. And, so, and you use Google Voice. I, I From the day I started this business back in 2004 or five, whatever it was, I went up and got a PO box. Nobody ever knew my address. Phone number was either a Google Voice number or, or a cell number, some way for me to screen calls and, and, and to keep that separation that way. You brought up two other really good points. One point you mentioned briefly, but I caught it because it's been heavy on my mind because of coronavirus and, and that's have a reserve account. Oh. And in 2018, I started talking to a lot of my investors and saying, hey, look, we're probably at the top of the cycle. And I started preaching more and more to my investors and I, I I think some of them listen, but I said, you should have six months of expenses in your bank account. Stop pulling out that cash flow until you have at least three or four months saved up. And I don't think a lot of investors, small time investors do that. I know on these bigger deals, we, we don't buy it unless we can put six months in a reserve account for our expenses. And uh, so coronavirus hit and I was texting people advice, how to manage rent and we couldn't evict, but we can still collect rent and do, you know, deals as far as rent payback goes, if people could right. pay. And, and I started getting texts back, texts back. Hey, what do I do, Sam? What, what if, what do I do if they don't pay? And I'm like giving them advice. They're like, no, you don't understand. Like I won't be able to pay the mortgage. And I thought, holy cow, like how do you not have at least one month saved up? And people were really nervous, really under a lot of stress. And luckily in May, I, I was a hundred percent collected for, for May for all my units. And a lot of my investors were as well, but we have tech jobs here in Lehigh and a lot of stay at home workers were still getting paid. So that's the strength of our asset class here locally. But I don't know. What do you think, Dave? I think most people don't do that at all. And it's kind of scary. Yeah. And we just talked about this and it came out. I didn't even, but when I saw these foreclosures, it wasn't the asset issue. It was an operator issue. And it's exactly what you just said. You nailed it. They, that people didn't, they ran out of cash to turn those units to get them re-rented. Well, then they, this hole keeps getting deeper and deeper and they lose a tenant. They don't have the cash. So now they're on another vacancy and now this, the rent income is going down and they don't have that cash to inject to turn units. So yep. That's why when this thing started, this coronavirus, I was like, cash is king. Stop all CapEx projects. Just halt any other plans. Retain tenants. Go back, renew leases on people that are good tenants. 
time is of the essence. I'm, I'm, I preach that all the time to my brokerage firm investors. you got to get in there and turn these units quickly. And, yep. and also just maybe scale back what we were talking about on your renovations, right? Yeah. You had this grand scheme to put all this stuff and it was going to take you six weeks to turn this unit, man, get it turned in two days and, and right. do less and just get somebody in there paying again, just control the bleeding essentially. But yeah, I think as real estate investors, we hate cash sitting around because Mm -hmm. we know it can be out there working for us and we're leveraging it. And so to know that you have cash just sitting there, it's painful, right? Right. But that's when I saw these, another thing, I saw these foreclosures in Nashville, a lot of them were Californians and they had used credit lines on their house to buy these things. And the renters, I would talk to renters all the time and Dave, I've been paying my rent. Why isn't he paying the mortgage? They were robbing Peter to pay Paul. Wow. So and it wasn't the asset, it was the investor and it was the operator error, not the, the asset error. And yeah, it was strange to me. I thought these people had hit hard times, whatever. No, it was none of that. Tenants had been there a year paying their rent and maintenance wasn't being done, but they were scared to get evicted. So they were paying their rent. They're getting knocks on their door, trying to find the owners and all that. And the yeah. owners just paying their mortgage. So that's, that was the, what I saw in, uh, in, in 08, 9, 10. So again, back to, we felt comfortable selling these products and having people buy them because we knew, again, if we had a a good buyer Mm -hmm. that had the cash reserves. And so that kind of rolls into the next point is I hear everybody say, I'm going to wait till the next crash. They don't understand financing when stuff crashed. I was just on my phone with my banker and I remember him telling me this. He said, Dave, back in 2008, nine, he said, Mm -hmm. it would be easier for me to give you a loan on kitchen equipment commercial kitchen equipment or heavy forklifts, things like that right now than a cash flowing real estate asset. Yep. Um, and I was just blown away. I'm like, you're serious? And he was like, dude, I can't touch anything real estate. I don't care how good of a deal it is right now. Yeah. So people forget that. I had banks giving people 20% loans and they had to bring 80% to the table. These wow. are people that W-2s and six-figure income jobs and, and million-dollar net worths could barely get loans on this. So to say, I'm going to wait till the next crash is somewhat crazy because you don't understand wow. some of the financing on it. So um, that, That's a great point, man. That's a really good point. And people don't understand that you can still make great money in a hot market like this. You just have to be patient and, and buy the right deal and know what you're doing. I'm buying these townhomes. They're 300000 apiece but they have amazing amenities. They're five minutes from the freeway and 60,000 new jobs, tech jobs like Adobe and Oracle. And you have to find a niche and there's always going to be opportunity, but financing is easy right now. Minus coronavirus, lenders don't bat an eye when you're buying another townhome or another duplex, another fourplex. And, And that's something I wanted to bring up. And that's why I really love multifamily you talked about it earlier, you can get non-recourse loans. And for those that don't understand what that is, if I buy a duplex or a fourplex or a townhome or a house, the lender is going to look at my credit and I'm approved based on my credit and it's my credit score and my debt to income. Low and all that, right? Yeah. And, and if it goes down, if it goes south and at the worst comes to worse, my credit's going to be ruined. Now we go buy one of these, like the 282 units I'm doing with Rod and, and Robert in Cincinnati. It's non-recourse, which means we are on the loan, but if worse comes to worse, something crazy worse than coronavirus happens, we lose that asset. It doesn't come back on our credit and none of our investors have to use their credit to qualify either. And so that just mitigates and reduces a huge amount of risk. 
And also back to that point, that's what one of the biggest problems we saw too during the crash was these loans coming due. So you had a five-year mm-hmm. you know, loan from a local bank in 2000, well in 2005, or let's say 2003, you got the loan on a, on a duplex. Well, in 2008, you were having to redo that loan. The yeah. values had come down. So people were paying $150,000 for a duplex. And now you're trying to get it refinanced five years later and it's worth 75 or 80, right? Yep. There's two options, either the bank you know, they're going to take a hit because the feds are going to come and say, look, that asset's not worth that. You have to put that difference away in, in a separate account that you can't lend out. So it, it, it hits the, it puts a, a bad burden on the bank and that they lose that opportunity to lend that money. Or second option, which you don't want is Dave, you got to, you know, put the money up and most people couldn't. So luckily, and it happened to me, I'm telling you, but luckily the bank said, Hey, we'll work with you. But I had one house I got back to flip. I had a, a couple single families that I was flipping and, and they became rental properties. And the bank said, we'll do the loan, but we're going to redo it every year. And oh, you're wow. going to have to appraisal, get an appraisal every year on this thing until we get to that place where you've got that 20% equity. Wow. Um, so I'm going to pay for a $500 appraisal every year. It was on a 12 month loan. Holy and so that's, that's back to another pro about doing these HUD or Freddie or Fannie is getting a 10 or 15 year loan on a 30 year amortization or 20 year loan on a 30 year amortization. We always would actually, another trick we use is we'd actually pay a little bit higher interest rate to get a seven year versus getting a five. Um, Again, the further we could kick out that refinance option, but now fast forward for me, a lot of my stuff, I'm at like a 40 or 50% loan to value. So those concerns about leverage are not anymore unless something happens. Um, right. Either. But again, I wrote some notes on the recession and, and one of them was tenants, right? When you go through one of these things, you want to make sure you have good tenants, right? right. If you have bad tenants, I see it all the time. People putting, you know, you know, renters in units and not screening them and not knowing where they work, you know, and if your livelihood relies on these people paying you rent, you better do a good job at screening your tenants. Yeah. Types of assets, you were talking about that. We always said C-class housing is recession proof. That was a mm-hmm. thing I said. Now we've seen its weakness, right? In this yeah. coronavirus, because yeah. if you have class A or maybe B plus, you've got tenants that can work from home, do Zoom calls or professional. But when you're you know, catering to service workers and, and people that work at hotels and restaurants and they've lost their jobs. So again, diversifying, maybe having some nicer stuff, some lower class stuff. Again, the asset type financing is huge, right? In these times with the non-recourse type of financing and, and stretching that loan out as long as you can. Cash is king. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. And then time is of the essence, getting tenants in there as quickly as you can. Oh, yeah. you know, we've got some tenants that aren't paying. We're just going to them right now and just saying, hey, just move out. Just give us the unit back. Let's work out a plan. Maybe even I had an old timer one day said, Dave, I've got 4,500 units. I don't evict anybody. We do cash for keys. All we want is the unit back. He said, I'm not spending money. We'll never get money from them on collections or attorneys. So yeah. we just really work this cash for keys thing. And again, wow. get unit back. Cause we're, we're still seeing units being leased up almost every day. Right. Um, so I like it. Awesome, man. Thank you. Those are some really good points. Cash for keys. I, I've done that twice now. Never had to evict anyone. I don't think you ever really should. If, if you're managing duplexes and fourplexes, you do it the right way, just like Dave is saying. Just like you're saying, man, it just, they're, they're, I've, I can't imagine a scenario where you actually have to evict someone if you've gotten ahead of it. For example, when coronavirus, the shutdown started, 
This is a text I sent out to my, all of my renters. I said, hey, I hope you're well. If you're having job issues or you're, you're not able to go to work, rent will always be due no matter what. Rent will always be due. But let's work together and let's create a win scenario. I'm happy to work out a program with you. If you need to move out, fine. But I'd rather you just stay and we work something out. And I ha- I've had zero renters not pay. Whereas I had investors who I actually sent that text. I said, hey, I sent it to all my investors. I said, please send this to all your renters. If you self-manage or even if you have a property manager, tell them to send this, get ahead of this. And I had a couple that didn't. And then a month later, they're calling me saying, hey, what do I do? They haven't paid in two months. Yeah, let me stop you right there because you and I definitely work in different asset classes because I have, I've done thousands of evictions. I hate to do them because I have the same attitude you have is, hey, yeah. let's work something out. If you can just get me that unit back, we'll work out a payment plan. We'll stretch it out. I'm very easy to work with. And, and, but communication, you've got to communicate with me and you got to do what you say you're going to do. So if you told me you're going to pay me $100 a month, we're going to do that. But man, I've got... I use a collection company here in Nashville and literally they have hundreds of thousands of dollars they're trying to collect from me. And it's wow. really because of that. People just move out in the middle of the night. They leave the unit trash. So now they're getting charged to clean it. They yep. didn't give us a 30 or 60 day notice. So they're getting charged for that month. Plus the late fees, plus the court fees. When a, what they could have probably worked out for eight or $900 one month's rent is now $3,000, right? Yep. Yep. And I was on my Zoom call the other day and I showed this check. I sent it the same thing. Somebody moved out. I filled all of the paperwork. I sent it to this collection company and it was 10 years ago. And I just got a $2,000 check from these tenants. Wow. Um, I, I was, I, I didn't even know who, I was like, I think I know who this tenant is. <laughs> I kind of had to go back and do a little research. And I was like, man, we're always advising. If somebody moves out in the middle of the night, leaves you with that debt, just turn them over. A, because you might get paid 10 years later, but B, it also is going to, be on the record so that when I get them, I'm not renting to them. It's, it's a favor to the next landlord. I think I just do it again for you, Sam, so that when, I, when the tenants left me high and dry, you can decide what you want to do with them. And if you're going to rent to them, but at least you have the knowledge. That's a really good point. And yes, we're talking about different asset classes. These are non-luxury A-class townhomes that I'm, I'm dealing with. Those are the only ones they self-manage because they're easy. But yeah, if I was doing duplexes and fourplexes that were older, that had maybe a little bit blue, more blue collar, that's exactly the approach I would take. But look, we're running out of time. I really appreciate you being on here. Any last thoughts on coronavirus, on 2008, any words of advice? You, kind of, you gave some really good points, but anything else that's come to mind? No, I think you and I do a lot of the same type of things. Our thinking is very similar. Again, you know, if you're new, do your research, figure out, you know, what market you want to be in. If you want to go small or large or find a guy like me in Nashville or or the Southeast, Sam, same thing, find people like us. We are more than willing to share our knowledge. You know, we want to get you involved. Another reason I love this is you put money in one of our deals. You want to go look at it. You want to go on site. You want to learn the business. We're an open book and we teach people, right? That's how we're selling. And, and we want to, to educate people why this is such a, a good investment. And again, like you said, we just went through this coronavirus. If you own American Airlines stock, you know, <laughs> what they're worth. I had 96% of my tenants pay. Yep. Maybe values have gone down a little bit, maybe readjusted, maybe a tad. I don't know yet. We'll see how it all ends up. We didn't lose 50 or 60% of our value. Yeah. Um, and we still, I tell people didn't just disappear from earth over this coronavirus. Same thing in the recession. No. People didn't just get zapped up 
and not need places to live. In okay. fact, the first thing the government did was send out checks to people to make sure they could pay rent and they didn't get evicted. And back to, back to 2005 and six is I had a uh, very experienced people teaching me at that time. And they said, like, we knew something was wrong when we wouldn't rent to people, but they could buy houses. Yeah. And I thought, wow. So a, a good housing market is really not good for us landlords. So I always tell people when interest rates go up, it actually is going to drive my rents up and, and, yep. and occupancy. And so yep. you learn these things, but again, that's just part of self-education, getting masterminds, go to zoom calls, yeah. Pay for coaching. Listen all, to the podcast. <laughs> listen to Sam's podcast always. Yeah. Subscribe. Get that subscribe button. Give him a great comment. There we and go. Continue to learn from some of the best that he's going to have on the show. We've got some great people, including you. Um, I really want to find a hundred plus unit asset in your neck of the woods. If you can find so us do one. I. Yeah, I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find us one, I can be on a plane with Michael and in a heartbeat and come by it. So find us something. But, but how do people get in touch with you? Cedar Rock Capital, it's a great company. You do great things. What, what's the best way for people to find you? I always do this and I haven't regretted it yet, but you can call me on my cell phone. It's 615-479-8737. Reach out to me. I'd love to talk, check, text. I've got different emails. Dave at cedarrockcap.com, cedarrockcap.com, Dave, or Dave at RIA hyphen INC. If you want to get plugged in either on small stuff here in the middle Tennessee area or, or larger stuff I'm working on in the Southeast, love to connect with you. Give me a call on my cell phone, find me on Facebook. We'll connect that way. And he'll be the guy riding four wheelers on Facebook. Yes. You'll see me <laughs> riding four wheelers. So awesome. I'll put all that in the show notes so people can see uh, your phone number, your email, your Perfect. Facebook. I really appreciate you having you on, man. I'd love to do a deal with you and bring some money and, and experience to deal with you and, Learn Still waiting well. for you and Landon just to come and shoot guns and ride four-wheelers. So that's oh that has to come first. I have to vet you and see exactly. how good of a shot you are and how good at riding you are. I'll, br I'll bring my guns. And, okay. and remember, I grew up in Idaho and a uh, bit of a redneck myself. So we'll see. But no, yeah, that sounds awesome, man. I really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, that was fun, man.